Uh, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in chapter 3 this morning as we begin a brand new chapter, going verse by verse through the Gospel according to Luke. It's an exciting chapter change as we move from the birth narrative and the childhood of Jesus. Now we're getting into the uh, adult ministry of Jesus, but the adult ministry of Jesus doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins with John the Baptist, who really serves as the last Old Testament prophet, and he, he's the, the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so you see that he comes preaching, and he, becomes cre- he comes preaching a, a baptism of repentance. What does it mean to repent? Well, repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of course, a change of heart, a change of direction. The word in the Greek literally is a compound word, and it means decide or after and mind. So you have the word afterthought or aftermind. Uh, a great illustration of this is if you're walking in one direction and you realize you're walking in the wrong direction, you stop and you turn and you walk in the right direction. But as an illustration continues, well, what if you're traveling at a rapid speed? What if you're on a bicycle and you're going in the wrong direction? Well, there's going to be a period of time where it takes you a minute to, to slow down. You may have recognized that, but as you walk out that repentance, there's a period of slowing and turning and you might see that some repentance takes more than just an initial thought and a change. Well, what if you're traveling in a car and you're traveling at a high speed and you try to come to a stop? I remember being 16 and thinking that I could drive very well. And let's be honest, I could not drive very well as a 16-year-old. And I remember the very first wreck that I was in. I was driving my friends home from school and I got into their neighborhood and there was this long straightaway neighborhood and I decided let's gun it. Let's, let's put this manual five-speed in gear, and let's go. Let's see how fast we can go. And there was, a, unfortunately, an older lady in a larger car than I was driving ahead of me. And I thought, God, who drives the speed limit in his neighborhood, right? So I'm going to pass her. I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to floor it past her. And about the time that I moved into that left lane, she hit her blinker to make a left turn. And I did everything I could. I put both feet on the brake. I stood as much as I could to try to stop the car. And unfortunately, I clipped her. And I sent her into a spin, often into a a neighbor's yard. And as the police arrived, they were like, son, how fast were you going? And I said, I have no idea. I have no idea. All I know is I was moving. And they said, well, your, your tire marks are 54 feet long. So you were moving at a rapid pace. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I was, I was moving. So there was a time when I was having that afterthought. As I'm driving the car and I thought, you know what? I should stop. I should stop going in this direction and I should change. Oh, a ladybug just flew out of my hair. I should stop and I should, um, I should go in a different direction. But yet it took me a moment to slow things down and to change my direction. That's often how repentance works. We would like for it to be a one-time prayer. We would like to say, well, I I went to that service. I I, I felt the emotions. I, I prayed a prayer. I repented. And yet I left and there were still lasting effects. There were still time of change that had to take place. And as John the Baptist shows up, he shows up telling us that it is God's grace that leads us to repentance. 
And oftentimes that repentance is a process of recognizing our sin for what it truly is and then making the conscious decision to put that sin in the rearview mirror and to focus on Christ. Hebrews 12, 2. Look into Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray this morning that God's grace would be a primer to our hearts and lead us all into repentance. Let's pray. Father, we get into your word this morning. We thank you for your grace. It is by your grace and your grace alone that each and every one of us are here this morning. It is by your grace and your unmerited favor upon each and every one of us that we have your word that we can look at this morning. We have been gifted not only with your word, but we've been gifted with the promised Holy Spirit for those of us who have placed our faith in you and your son, Jesus Christ. You've given us everything we need for a life of godliness. And so today as we examine our hearts and as you, by the presence and the power of your spirit, convict us, make us aware of what sins are in our lives and lead us towards change. Lead us towards repentance. Father, I personally am unworthy of your grace. I am a sinful man. And I have sinful thoughts. And I have sim- sinful words. And sinful actions. And I pray for your grace. And a heart of repentance. This morning. In your name I pray. Luke chapter 3. Let's read here. As you're turning there, let me say this. J.C. Ryle says, Let us notice first in this passage the wickedness of the times when Christ's gospel was brought into the world. The opening verses of the chapter tell us the names of some of the rulers and governors in the earth. When the ministry of John the Baptist began, it's a melancholy list, full of instruction. There is Hardly a name on it, which is not infamous for wickedness. Tiberius and Pontius Pilate and Herod and his brother and Annas and Caiaphas were men of whom we know little of nothing but evil. The earth seemed given into the hands of the wicked. And yet this is the world in which the word came. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being patriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Acheria and Petronitus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do, not, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? 
And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This is God's word. From repentance comes both a faithful witness and fruitful living. It is through the repentant act that we see a faithful witness and we see fruitful living. So first one, a faithful witness. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming. As we see these names, Annas and Caiaphas, they may sound familiar because Caiaphas is one of the, was the son-in-law of Annas and was the uh, high priest and the one who was the leader in the plot to arrest Jesus and have him crucified. Caiaphas would have been a leader of the religious sect, the Jewish sect. He would have been a Sadducee. He would have been a man of high position. He would have been someone who was more than likely wealthy and used his wealth and his political power to play the game between the Roman government and Jewish law. And so he was heavily involved in politics, and yet he's the leader. But God's message does not come to him, does it? It comes to a man in the wilderness. It doesn't come to the religious leaders. It doesn't come to the political elite. It doesn't come to the movers and shakers of the day, the guys who would have a voice of authority. It comes to a man wearing camel's hair and a leather belt, eating locusts in the wilderness. And he's the one that God has chosen to be the instrument of faithful proclaiming of the gospel. It could have came to men who were priests wearing their temple attire, their priestly robes, but instead it comes to a humble John the Baptist. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming. Now, the last time we saw this, Zechariah had seen an angel, and the angel had told him, you're going to have a son. John is who you're going to call him. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to go, and he's going to proclaim. And there had been this period of 400 years of silence from any prophet, and now you have John not seeking a political stance, not trying to be popular. He's coming to be faithful to the Lord. He's a faithful witness of proclaiming a gospel and a gospel that is somewhat unpopular. Paul knew this, Galatians 1, 6 through 10. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. John comes preaching a gospel, and that gospel is offensive. And why is that gospel offensive? Because it points out sin for what sin really is. And when you begin to point out sin in people's lives, 
people feel like their toes are getting stepped on. And when their toes are getting stepped on, they begin to get aggressive. If you look at verse 18 and 20, later on in that chapter, you see how offensive John got. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. John got to the point where he rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, which was his brother's wife, and for all the other evil things that he was doing, and it got him thrown into jail. He started calling out sin for what it really is. Now, I'm going to say this. There is absolutely no proclamation of the gospel without also a preaching of repentance. There isn't a proclamation of the gospel without a preaching of repentance. Repentance is necessary for the gospel to be preached. Many churches today, they've moved away from gospel-centered proclamation. And why? Because they're fearful of losing popularity. They're afraid they might be offensive. So they've turned the proclamation of the gospel into a spiritual TED Talk or something that says, let me give you some good advice on Christian living, where the true gospel points out sin. I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. The business of evangelism is not just to solve people's problems. Psychology does that. The cults do that. Many things do that. The thing that separates the gospel from every other teaching is that it is primarily a proclamation of God and our relationship to God. Not our particular problems, but the same problem that has come to all of us. That we are condemned sinners before a holy God and a holy law. That is evangelism. I must therefore always put repentance first. William Booth said it this way, the chief danger in the 20th century, not the 21st, the 20th century, will be a religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and heaven without hell. That's what will be preached. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this a long time ago, that's cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. There is no Christian gospel without a call to repentance. And those who preach the word preach repentance. And that is exactly what John the Baptist was doing. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's now proclaiming a repentance that has action. The Westminster Shorter Catechism put it this way, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of his true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. There's a full definition there that says that repentance is not just feeling sorry for sin. It's not just the conviction of sin that comes upon you and you saying a prayer. No, it is a hatred for the sin that is in your life with a full purpose of turning from it towards new obedience in Christ. And so he comes preaching a baptism of repentance. As it was written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh 
shall see the salvation of God. Well, right here we see, number one, it points out a voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. There's one that's going to come, and this is the message that he's going to have. He's going to preach a message of repentance. Just prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. That's the act of repentance. And what will be the result of this? And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You'll see Jesus come in right after this message of John the Baptist, but also those who repent see salvation. So let's look at repentance and how it is given in these verses. Repentance A begins with a prepared heart. It says there, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John's cry was not for Jews to literally go out and make the straight roads so the Messiah could come. It was to prepare your hearts for his arrival. Make the paths straight. Often we think of repentance as a way to receive forgiveness. But repentance is also a cleansing. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so it's a, there's some things in your life that you need to prepare. You need to make preparation for his arrival. Now, if the president of the United States was coming over for Sunday lunch today at your house, some of you I know would probably lock the door, but others of you would certainly clean the house, would you not? You would say, listen, I, I've got to step out of church a little bit early, Pastor. Don't, don't say anything to me. I've got to get home, and I've got to clean because the president's coming over. Now, when we think about that, we're like, yeah, I would, I would certainly want to straighten up. I might run the little Swiffer around, you know, and pick up some dust. What if Christ was returning? What paths need to be made straight in your heart? Is there areas of your life that you know that if he returned today, you would be like, I don't want him to find this in my life? That's where repentance begins. It begins with a prepared heart. Jesus will return. Will he find you faithful? B, repentance requires a humbled heart. He walks through these verses of what repentance is. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. Well, for repentance to have its full effect, every valley shall be filled. For repentance to fully take place in the heart of a believer, our emptiness must be filled with the presence of Jesus Christ. This means every crevice of our heart should be filled with him. There shouldn't be any areas of our heart that we've left off limits to Jesus Christ. Every valley of our heart and our life should be filled with the presence of God. In fact, there is no repentance without first the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Spirit of God initiates the repentant heart. If you're not repentant, it's not to mean that you're not sorrowful, but if you are not repentant, it is apparent that you lack the Spirit's presence in your life. I like how R.C. Sproul puts it. Genuine repentance is something that is worked in us by the Holy Spirit. It is a gracious activity by God. If a person has faith but not repentance, that person does not have authentic faith. That person does not possess the necessary ingredients for redemption. Conversion is a result of faith and repentance. The New Testament tells us that faith is a gift of God. Faith is not something produced in our own power, but it is wrought by the Holy Spirit. It is called rebirth or regeneration. 
If we asked 100 Christians to answer this question, which comes first, regeneration or repentance, I imagine that 90 out of 100 would say repentance comes first. However, it doesn't make sense that people who are dead in their sins and trespasses would incline themselves naturally to repentance. The New Testament teaches that God, the Holy Spirit, must first quicken our souls, making us alive spiritually. And the fruit of this work is godly repentance and faith. For repentance to have its full effect, every valley shall be filled. For repentance to have its full effect, every mountain and hill shall be made low. Well, what does this mean? It means that your prideful, rebellious heart where you sit on the throne of your life and you make the decisions must be torn down. Jesus Christ must sit on the throne of your heart for repentance to have its full effect. For repentance to have its full effect, the crooked shall become straight. This means your immoral actions must be stopped. You can't say I'm repentant if you're continuing in the sin you're repenting of. Some things have to stop. You can't say, well, I prayed, but I I went right back to it. For repentance to have its full effect, rough places shall become level ways. This means our calloused, insincere hearts must be made soft by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 13, 15, the NIV version, for this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. There's a lot of times where we can go through the motions of repentance, and yet we go through the motions with calloused hearts. See, repentance results in a changed life, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture of repentance is found in Psalm 51, 1 through 13. You're free to turn there with me if you'd like. It's a beautiful picture of David praying after he's been caught with his sin with Bathsheba. This prayer begins with, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. David begins with a heart that is throwing himself before the mercy of God to erase his sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He confesses. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is going before God to confess our sins Not only asking for forgiveness, but asking for the strength to refrain from continuing in that sin. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret part. Repentance doesn't make excuses. Repentance doesn't cast blame. It doesn't talk about the circumstances. It doesn't justify anything. It doesn't minimize the severity of your action. No, it says, I have sinned. I have done wrong, and it comes from within. 
Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I should be whiter than snow. There's that cleansing again. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Repentance is brokenness. It's brokenness that rejoices in the mercy and the grace of God. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is the regeneration of the heart. Repentance is God's work on the heart of a believer. It's not us turning over a new leaf. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. As he ends there, he says, let my life of repentance be a faithful witness. How can we be a faithful witness to the life-changing presence of God in our life if we're not repentant people? Kent Hughes says it's important for us to see the close connection between repentance and forgiveness because while no amount of repentance can ever merit forgiveness in the sight of God, without repentance, no soul will ever be saved. Repentance is the telltale mark of grace of God at work in our lives. Saving faith and true repentance are always found together. Saved souls are repentant souls. Let me ask you, what does repentance look like in your life? Is there areas that today you need to turn from? Maybe you're walking at a slow pace, and it might be an easy, I need, to, I need to stop doing that. But some of you, you have been hitting the gas pedal in pride for way too long, and you're, you're starting to pick up speed. May God move into every valley and nook and cranny of your heart and fill you with the conviction of his spirit so that you will slam on the brakes and turn from sin and follow after Jesus. And that you would bear fruit, a fruitful repentance. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. This is, this is not a uh, friendly message, is it? This is not a seeker-sensitive message that John's giving. He's saying, you guys are like snakes. You guys, you guys are like the snakes that are hiding in a bush that caught on fire, and now you're escaping from the heat because you feel the pressure, you feel the heat, and you're just looking for some fire insurance. Now, let's think about that for a second. This is the religious people who know that these are the right motions to go through, and so they come to say, I'm going to go through the right motions so that I can get fire insurance and not go to hell. And he said, you brood of vipers. You have no intent on changing your life. You simply want to pray a prayer, go through the waters of baptism so that you feel like you've checked it off your box. That's evil. That's basically what John the Baptist says. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He says, listen, if there is no root of Jesus in your life, there will certainly be no fruit from your baptism of repentance. So without the faithful expression of obedience, it's nothing but an external show. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
John goes on to say there is a final judgment. True believers, those who bear good fruit from genuine repentance, will be gathered by God. While the lost sinners, those that do not bear fruit, will be burned in the fire. Thus concluding that the snakes will not avoid the flames. So the crowd responds, verse 10, and the crowd asks him, what then shall we do? I love how J. Vernon McGee puts it. This is a practical message that John gave these people who came from different classes and conditions. My friends, if you are a printer, you reveal that you are a Christian by the way you print. I don't know if we have any printers in here. If you are a soldier, you reveal your Christianity by the way you soldier. If you are a housewife, you reveal your Christianity by the way you are a housewife. You reveal what you are. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what are the fruits that he says here? Let me give you three practical ones. A fruitful repentance produces a fruit of generosity. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Generosity. I, I did a discipleship book this week. And as I was going through it, I got to a, a lesson on generosity. And these are all things that I knew, but it was convicting to say the least. In my discipleship book, it told me that the Bible has over 2,350 verses that deal with money. Jesus directly addressed the subject of money more than he did heaven and hell combined. He spoke about money five times more than he did about prayer. Do you think money's an issue? Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus talked about money because he knows that how you spend your money reveals what you love most. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. In Luke 12, 33 and 34, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches. And no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. It's a difficult thing to learn because it's not our default position. But as we repent and our lives produce a fruit of repentance, we live as if people are more important than possessions. You want to know a telltale sign of a repentant heart? People are more important than things. And your life reveals it. When we have repentant hearts, God sits on the throne of our desires. And when God sits on the throne of our hearts, our hearts are more inclined to generosity. But when we sit on the throne, when we are not repentant, we're more inclined to be greedy, are we not? As C.S. Lewis said, I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch, do not at all pinch or, or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. A fruitful repentance, B, produces a fruit of honesty. 
the tax collectors come to him. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Since these tax collectors were for Rome, they were often viewed as traitors. They were referred to in a own class of their own. They were worse than sinners. They're tax collectors. They were hated by many. And the reason is, is because they would often overcharge beyond what was required so that they could skim some off the top. A simple indicator of what John says is, if a tax collector truly has repented, it'll transform the way he does his business. Let me ask you, how has your dealings with people changed since you started walking in repentance? A faithful repentance produces in us a fruit of contentment. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Contentment is a, it's an odd word, really. If you look it up in Greek, it means enough. When is enough enough? Isn't that a difficult question? Because in our economy, in our mindset, there's, there's always something more. But when we repent, we see Christ is enough. Christ is enough. 1 Timothy 6, halfway through verse 2 through 10, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Content people are committed people. Content people are they're not controlled by money. They're committed to God. And it shows up in their life of godliness. Let me end with this verse in Hebrews 13, 1 through 5. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, and though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in, ho in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A life of repentance is a life that is a faithful witness. And a life of true repentance is a life that bears fruit. May we be a people of repentant hearts, of faithful witness, and of fruitful lives for his glory and his glory alone.